Stay tuned. Eastside Radio, 89.7 FM. Hello and welcome back to another Breaking Wave show. You are listening to Alex Healy here on 89.7 Eastside FM. Last show was great because I had my co-host, my partner in crime, Arabella, but she's taking a break. So I'm on my own for the next two shows, but I am rising to the occasion. So I thought, what am I going to do today? I know, I'm going to turn the microphone to my producer, Ruth Hesse. <laughs> Be gentle with me, Alex. I will. You tried to get out of the interview, but you cannot. The world has to know well, how hmm. successful and what you've done. You only told me last time I saw you. We'll get it. We'll, okay, we'll get into it. But you were a feature editor at Vogue. We'll get into that later. We'll get into everything. But first, I want to know, you've had a long career in media. When did you know that it was something you wanted to do? Well, first of all, I was a feature writer at Vogue. So just in case the editor from that period is listening, which he <laughs> no doubt is, um, I didn't know. I was very confused. I really loved acting when I was a teenager, um, yeah. but I was very, very good at reading and I loved um, – I was just a voracious reader from an early age, from the oh, minute – I wish. And I loved writing from the minute I could pick up a pencil when I was about three years old. So wow. I was – my grandmother always said to me, you're a writer, but I also loved acting. And I didn't really want to go to university. I wanted to go to Paris for a year <gasps> or ten. To do what? Uh, just hang out and, and oh. play Edith Piaf records. And That's a dream. Yeah. That oh was, my it was silly. And I'm, I was lucky, actually. I was rescued by my uncle who said, um, you're going to be a failure and your life will be a wash up. Get yourself to university. <gasps> so he was fairly harsh. But sometimes you need someone to be brutal with you when you're you 17 and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I did go to university and... Oh, look, I had a lot of trauma in my childhood that it took me decades to get over. So at university, mm. I pretty well excelled at playing 500 <laughs> for most of my three oh years my at God. university. But I was saved by the fact and staying up all night and drinking, what was it in those days, just um, scotch and <laughs> coke and stuff oh, like that. Oh, no, Ruth. Bailey's, <laughs> um, which no. I wouldn't recommend as any way to get through life or university, but that's all I that's encountered at the time. And I think I was rescued by the fact that I loved film and <sighs> theatre. So when I went to university, those were my – I did a double major. I just did an arts degree, mm. which in those days was called Marriage One, very disparagingly, because so many women did arts and it was considered to be not a career-building degree. But mm-hmm. most of the people that I went to university with who were doing arts have all gone on to play key roles in media. Like Eric Campbell's now one of the – he's a famous author and is one of the key foreign correspondent reporters at the ABC. Wow. Dave Gibson became a very high-profile DJ in commercial radio. Uh, my other friend, Sina, um, Frances, who's sadly now passed on from cancer, Sorry. she was a literary agent – for many years, so uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So arts was a, a great way to become a communicator, and uh, I was lucky. Yeah, I think the drama department saved me, and we had a great mm. film lecturer who introduced us to the Nouvelle Vague in French cinema. So Truffaut and all of those people who were exploring culture and looking at. Mm. 
Um, they were critiquing, critiquing uh, I guess, capitalism in a way before it became really mainstream as it is now. And so I was introduced to a lot of quite radical ideas and then I became um, an editor for the student paper called Tharunka, which is the famous student paper, and we did that for a year and that involved... Um, staying up very late, well, actually for three <laughs> days in a row, once a fortnight, and putting the paper together. But we learned the basics of journalism from that. You did when you and so that was a really great was waitressing. <laughs> that is, okay, that's always the way. That is always I waitressed for several years because I was a, a fairly miserable actress when I first came out of university. That's what I thought I wanted to do. and mm. But I really hated auditions and I hated reading scripts where I was supposed to um, – kiss some strange actor and be sexy in a cold audition in front of strangers and I found the whole process really harrowing which mm. I I had some um in our family there was quite a lot of um sexual abuse from one particular person way back uh, my great-grandfather actually so mm. I didn't know how much that was affecting me when I was young but it made acting extremely painful because it's so exposing Mm. so while I loved it I was incredibly self-critical like to the point where I'd just torture myself I'd come off stage and think I'd been terrible I found auditions just harrowing I was always worrying about whether I looked beautiful enough or you know I had all the stuff in my head that women battle with today Uh, how fat or thin was I Um, I'd been anorexic as a teenager but Mm. I I had a great boyfriend and he was really supportive so I struggled on with that and then when I was about 27 28 my boyfriend and I we'd been together since university split up and he had been a very successful writer as a teenager for Rolling Stone magazine really and he'd written for American Rolling Stone and we were all at uni and a little bit in awe of it. Although Ed was a, Ed was trying very hard to be cool so some of us kind of thought that was funny. Um, but he also was really cool and we got together and he introduced me to the idea that someone could freelance and make a living out of writing. And he Mm. edited some rock music magazines and put out a book while we were together. And then he got into television and that was a whole other world. And we we subsequently split up. And I didn't know what to do with myself because I'd been with this guy. We'd just assumed we'd be together forever. And I was rescued. I was waitressing thinking, I hate this. This is what, you know, I'd been in a lot of independent theatre productions, I'd been for TV auditions and not got them. And then a friend of Ed's, some people we met who were all in the journalism world at that time said, um, do you want to do me a story, a review of ice cream? And I said, yeah. Uh, And I did it. And he said, I think you're a better writer than your boyfriend. And I went, oh, no way. That's not possible. Ed's the best. Um, But then he offered me a film review. And that was my first film review. Um, I think it was... Who was it for? Mm, What company? It was for the Eastern Herald. So the Sydney Morning Herald had some regional papers in those days Mm. and suburban papers. And the Eastern Herald operated out of Hollywood Avenue in Bondi Junction. Really? So How successful was it? uh, Oh, it was, was, you know, it was... What what you wrote? Oh, well, I got a job after that. Um, The Eastern Herald Mm. was kind of like what the Wentworth career is now. Mm. Um, And... They had an, a part-time arts editor position. So after I wrote that film review, the editor at the paper 
asked me if I would like the part-time job. And that's how I got into the Sydney Morning Herald. Oh, so please tell me about that. I got training there. Um, nobody had computers in those days. My boyfriend worked on a typewriter. He used to kill oh them my. by pounding on oh them God. so hard. Um, <laughs> I could not type without autocorrect. I like yeah, there was no the autocorrect. <laughs> there was none of that cut and paste that you, you had oh to. Oh, my gosh. That would have taken forever. I remember doing my university essays by getting all the pieces of paper on the floor and cutting all the bits up and pasting them together oh so my that God. it would flow. Stop, Ruth, you're giving do. me a headache. I don't, know how many, I don't know how Tolstoy wrote a book, but in those days, a oh lot of those gosh. authors had someone like a wife who would do their editing for them. Anyway, instead of the computer. Um, so I was trained mm. by the Sydney Morning Herald. I had to go to training about how to be a journalist and journalistic standards of accuracy and so forth. I was given training in a computer, which I'd never had before, oh, and I was introduced lifesaver. to their internal messaging system, which was what um, we would now call email, but no one had email. But inside mm. the Fairfax media, you did. So you could message each other. So wow. it was a whole world of technical possibilities. And I did that for about a year and a half. And it was very successful. And then I was allowed to go over to the main paper. Oh, wow. So what I shifted over to the main paper as a part-time mm. freelancer for several sections. Metro, which was all about film and music and pop culture. Mm. Um, food, uh, good living and oh um, travel and stuff like that. So I basically wrote for the Metro and, and then I went for a couple of years just writing feature stories about all the new films coming out and it was great. I worked really hard. I used to stay up until three or four in the morning while other people were off at the bar having fun. That is, I was yeah. I was up at six. I was in there. I said yes to every single job that was offered to me. I worked when I was sick. That's I amazing. was just a machine and it was a really competitive scrum in there trying to get work and I actually found out later that the desk I was given, the journalist who'd had that before me was told the day before that she was out and then the desk was given to me. Wow. So that's how competitive it was and I just put my head down and went for it without any ambition about where I was going or what I was doing. I just wanted that work. I had to get that work because mm. I no longer was in a team with a boyfriend. And mm. uh, I guess I was, you know, I was scared. I how, had to make a living. How was it dating him for so, so long and then going out on your own, discovering how much you love journalism and then working there? How was it like being independent and working so hard and having such a great work ethic? How did you develop from there to become the incredibly successful independent woman you are today <laughs> like you went from being like as most as quite a few people are I was a girlfriend a yeah, yeah I was the girlfriend and we'd go to rock concerts and and my boyfriend was really inundated by publicists and women who wanted to flirt with him and I would just be ignored and bands who were really kind of um, you know, male bands in those days particularly were – there were only a certain type of girl they were interested in so I just used to get mm. ignored and I didn't feel Yuck. sexy in the way that rock and roll liked. And, yeah, I went from that. It was very exciting. I had a really great time in my mm. first – couple of years in journalism at the Herald, I met lots of interesting people. It's I amazing. met lots of other journalists who'd gone through the cadet process and I'd just mm. managed to slip in. I got wow. work with The Age. I, a lot of people wanted me to write for them and I mm. was driven by something, maybe a bit of too much coffee. No, no, you have an amazing work ethic. <laughs> it's just who you are. Even today, you are so, so driven. And we are going to get into that much 
further later after this song, one of Ruth's favourite. It is Human Behaviour by B. York.
You're listening to Breaking Waves here on 89.7 Eastside FM. We're talking with Ruth Hesse. Now, how did your career turn from working as the feature writer at the Sydney Morning Herald to being headhunted by, by Vogue? Like, that's, stop it. It's blowing my mind. Really. <laughs> um, well, it was a bit of a quick rise in journalism. It only took me a couple of years. But I was only one of many feature writers, and I was a fairly humble one. Um, I was just working freelance, and I was working on the supplements, not the main newspaper. And the news reporting was what had all the kudos in those days. Mm. It's been a big change in journalism journalism and the arts and lifestyle have become just as important but in those days it was the news journalists who were really revered and arts writers were just thought of as a bit fluffy and superfluous but I'd been at the Main Herald for oh, about a year I guess um, not getting much sleep and working like an idiot <laughs> um, and then I got a call from Vogue and the English features editor there uh, said, we're interested in, we've got a, the feature writer position coming up. I've been reading your material and would you like to come in and talk to us? And one of the editors at the Herald, where, which was very uncertain life as a freelancer, as I said, mm-hmm. it was very competitive. You could lose your perch at any minute, said, if I were you, I would take the chance of a full-time job, Ruth. And so even though I'd never really read Vogue um, or cared about it particularly, <laughs> I was pretty excited because at that, in that time it was owned by the biggest publishing, um, most prestigious publishing house or one of them in the world, Condé Nast, which owned The New Yorker mm. and a whole range of big glossy magazines. And at that time, the editor of The New Yorker was named Tina Brown, who's just famous now for writing books about the royal family and editing Tatler magazine in England. But at that point, she was the top editor in the world. She had made that paper, uh, that magazine, so readable. She was a brilliant editor. She brought out the best in her writers and it was all extremely intelligent. So Mm. believe it or not, Vogue these days is just about buying things. It's just totally consumer oriented. But we were quite obsessed when I was there for the two years that I stayed with really good writing. And I had an English editor who had that background. Um, I can't say that I really fitted into the Vogue culture. Yeah, that's what I know know about the culture at Vogue. Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, I was pretty much where it wasn't quite as scary because mm. there was no Anna Winter figure, yeah. <laughs> comparable figure in Australia. It was um, much more down home, I guess. But still, there was the whole Vogue idea. Madonna's song Vogue came out at the time I was there, so mm. voguing was vogueful, and <laughs> it was exciting in that way. There were two really important keys at, at uh, Vogue. One was to the beauty cabinet, and that's where all the potions that cost thousands of dollars were kept under lock and key. And I vividly remember one of the editors there. Um, they All the editors sat in glass boxes. And the editor-in-chief, I remember the day she threw her hands in the air and said, get me the hand cream. And someone had to scurry off with the gold key to the beauty oh. cabinet and get the $5,000 oh, cream for her to what? put on her hands because she couldn't do any more work without moisturising. Oh, uh, so there was that. And there were people rushing off to Paris to buy Chanel suits, which I thought was really daggy because I'd, I thought street style was much more interesting. So I was a little, I guess, um, condescending towards what 
Vogue thought was fashionable in those days. Um, but my interest was the other gold key, which was to the library. And that had all the gold, uh, the Condé Nast publications. And I could go in there and read all these magazines I could never afford. And it was the, at that time, making a magazine was like being in a band and working for a magazine were the two things everyone wanted to do. Seriously. Ten years later, everyone wanted to be a film director. These mm. days, they all want to make video games um, and be <laughs> podcasters. So the fashions changed slightly. But, um, yeah, so... Well, how did you go from being at Vogue for two years, journalism, Sydney Morning Herald, to being on radio, being a producer? Well, the Herald gives you incredible exposure. Um, you don't have to be there for long. You're coming out every week. People get to know your name really quickly. And Vogue didn't have the same reach, but it did give me some prestige as well. And I wrote mm. for um, Vogue uh, Living as well, which so I very disgruntledly actually chuffed off to do food writing, which I didn't appreciate at the time. I just wanted to do film and books and the arts. Um, but it was really good training. So I got – when I arrived at Vogue, they had no computers. So once mm. again, I was given a typewriter and I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is archaic. Like, what are these dinosaurs? But shortly after, I was a bit horrified. Shortly after I was there, they did introduce computers. I actually left Vogue after a couple of years because I'd started working in television. I'd been offered a review, film reviewing spot on ABC Arts Television and – so I decided that I didn't want to be involved in the fashion industry anymore. I thought it was a bit bitchy and silly and I wanted to get back out there. And I also was still interested in acting. So I was finding being in an office and trapped in front of a computer quite constrictive. Unfortunately, the TV show um, didn't survive and I was oh. axed. And this is part of being in television that people are constantly axed and you have to really be tenacious to keep climbing up that ladder so I was suddenly broke there was a recession and mm. I had quit all my jobs so I embarked on a career as a freelance writer I had someone gave me an old Mac computer the ones that look oh my like gosh a little the bricks box. yeah the brick <laughs> that you carry around and I had no money in the bank and it was a very frightening time, but it kind of introduced me to the highs and lows of freelancing and how if you just believe enough, which is something my old boyfriend Ed had taught me too, you will, the work does come in, but gee, stitching it together and the long dark nights wondering if you're going to be able to pay the rent and all your bills is really difficult. However, after a few years of freelancing and doing quite a lot of travel writing for different glossies like Elle magazine, um, which gave me the chance to begin traveling around the world, which was really good fun, I went wow. back to the Herald for five years in the late 90s. And once again, my exposure there was just phenomenal. Everyone wanted me to write for them. I was editing Australian stuff magazine in my spare time I still did theatre I was doing eight shows a week in independent cinema often oh with the lead gosh. role in in plays um, like the play about Joy Hester another one about Anais Nin um, a yeah just so much stuff going on and I was a sucker for punishment so obviously uh, you've was, done everything I was overworking <laughs> I was also trying to get screen short screen plays up and uh, I was just trying to do too much at once I guess but I was really driven and I also got offered a lot of spots on radio and mm -hmm. uh, two of those were one was the afternoons with Richard Glover 
um, Drive with Richard Glover and Afternoons with James Valentine. So I had spots, regular weekly spots on those shows for five years while I was at the Herald. Uh, And then um, a combination of burnout and the fact that the Sydney Morning Herald in those days was incredibly sexist. It's hard now to believe when most of the prominent journalists working for the Fairfax media empire are female and they very much promote gender equity how difficult it was to make your way as a woman in that kind of boys club and if you didn't get on with the right people I was screamed at and shouted at by various um, Mm -hmm. editors that I worked with I had a couple of great ones but I just after several years of this I got total burnout I went off and worked at the Museum of Sydney and uh, then I went into the environment movement and then I was working in the environment movement for 10 years and I really missed journalism and I rang up Eastside one day and said I'd pitched an environment show to the ABC and they weren't interested so this Mm. is nine years ago Um, people were still trying to deny climate and Tony Smythe went yeah come on so I started with a little half hour once a week called Green Velvet and then very quickly I was offered the drive spot which I've been at ever since and now I'm actually paid to produce Breaking Waves. You have done everything. Well not quite and there's still plenty on my list. (laughs) That's amazing. Plenty to do. That is incredible and you're currently writing a book. Why write a book at this point? Yeah why swap? I've (laughs) tried so many other mediums. Um, I think I burnt out with journalism because it's basically about selling things. Mm. Um, I was really committed to it because I believed in the ideas, but you're still flogging product in a funny way, whether it's newspapers or films or books or whatever. And, uh, yeah, and it's fiercely competitive. And I wasn't sure after – that's why I went into the environment movement. I wanted to do something that was meaningful and that was going to mean that Australia was a more kind of fair and and just and and beautiful place and that we survived climate change – And so short form wasn't going to cut it for me anymore. I really needed to. And I was pretty disillusioned with film as well after spending 15 years in the film industry. I made a short, um, I made a documentary film that got screened in 30 festivals around the world. No way. What was it about? uh, Waste Not. It was about how we're going to transition to a zero waste future. And even when I was making it, people said that it had no story, but it went on to be a really big hit. And it was, um, it's still, I got a letter the other day from um, someone in a university wanting to use the film and saying how inspired she was by the website. Because we also then created an educational resource called the Waste Not Trashin um, Project, which I did in collaboration with the Sydney Olympic Park and their Youth Eco Summit. Um, so we made lots of little videos and worked with high school students. So, yeah, why a book? Because you don't mm. need anybody else mm. to write a book. You don't need to get approval from a funding body or a stack of people who sit on boards deciding who gets funding. You don't need to get a whole lot of collaborators, even mm. though I love collaborating and working in teams. Um, it's one of the great things about the East Side community. You just pick up a pen. Um, of course, it's not that easy. It's really, <laughs> really difficult. And some days it's just like pushing that pen up an enormous mountain. But it's really satisfying and I've realised my grandmother was right. I'm a writer and all the other things have been interesting detours. And I'm not saying I won't go back to any of them. But I hope with finishing this book, which is mm. being published by, it's called Reforesting My Head. It's being published by Hardy Grant's Ultimo Press. Do you want to share a bit about 
what is involved um, in this book? I think I'll wait, okay. actually. That's yeah, fair. because Keep it's, it a surprise. it's a very controversial subject and yeah. it's part memoir and part travelogue, both astral and terrestrial travel. And uh, that's probably no, and it's got quite a lot to do with. Um, Indigenous culture, native plants and flora and fauna and uh, and how the earth is this incredible healing um, energy, this incredible creative energy that just if we tap into it instead of ignoring it and trying to destroy it, we have much richer and more beautiful and meaningful lives. So it's about a lot of the things that I've explored throughout my career but um, – yeah, reforesting my head. Out next year, 2023. Next, how long has it been taking you to write this? Um, I've been working on it for about three, three, four years. And yeah, I've got, I think I've got six months. My publisher's been, it was supposed to be out. It was supposed to be out already, but I've taken an extra six months to write it and I don't think I'll get it done by before the end of the year. It's okay. It has to be perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ruth, for coming on and sharing your story. You inspire me. Oh, well, thank you, Alex. You inspire me. And I have to say that Breaking Waves is one of the best things that I've done in my whole career, working with all you presenters and just watching you blossom and being able to pass on some of the things I've learned has just been really good fun and really inspiring. Oh my, that makes me so happy. Thank you so much, Ruth. <laughs> You're listening to 89.7 Eastside FM with Alex Healy. You can follow my social, alexandra.healy, H-E-L-Y. And we will see you next week. Bye for now.